five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Hey space enthusiasts, I have an Easter Passover Ramadan treat for you. My guest this week is none other than Chris Hatfield, the Canadian astronaut. Among his many accomplishments are being the first Canadian to conduct EVA, or colloquially a spacewalk, and also being the first Canadian to serve as commander of the International Space Station. Besides that, he's also a musician and a writer who recently published a thrilling novel called The Apollo Murders. We talk about all of this during this episode. You will not want to miss this one. Enjoy and happy holidays. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another exciting episode of the Space Business Podcast. And as longtime listeners know, it's called the Space Business Podcast. But every once in a while, I have guests who are not strictly or not only engaged in space business activities, but may have other really interesting space background. And certainly our guest today qualifies for that. I'd say it's Commander Chris Hatfield, famously a former Canadian astronaut, also a singer, and many other things we can talk about. But Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Rafael, and, and I appreciate you inviting me on. It's it's a great pleasure. So, Chris, so you retired a few years ago from active astronaut duty. Can you just summarize what what you've been up to? What does the post astronaut life look like? Yeah, as an astronaut, I flew in space three times, twenty one years, and uh, commanded the space station on my third flight. Uh, but you know. I loved the life of an astronaut, but I hardly ever flew in space. You know, in 21 years, I was only in space for six months. And so what I really realized was that uh, it's the life on Earth and, and uh, the activities and the things you're involved in that are going to really determine whether you enjoy life and, and feel you're accomplishing something or not. And so my wife and I made up a big list while I was an active astronaut of the things that really gave us satisfaction and a sense of worth and a sense of contributing and still made some money, you know what? And we decided that's what we want to be doing if possible after I leave the astronaut corps. And that's very much what I've been involved in. Um, I consult with multiple companies, some of them space related, but I'm also an engineer. So some of them just engineering related. And I'm currently on the board of, uh, of several companies. And so that was one area was to use sort of my experience to contribute to business success. Um, 
and then I've written some books. Uh, in fact, I've written four books and I'm writing a fifth book um, because it's another way to, to try and share the, the astronaut experience. Uh, I teach at university. Mm-hmm. Um, I've helped make uh, several television series, um, uh, one with the BBC, one with uh, National Geographic, and uh, you know a, lo- a lot of uh, sharing of the ideas using media like that. Uh, I'm a musician, and so I, I play and travel with various bands. I even I play with Bowie's band, David Bowie's mm-hmm. band, and tour with them. Um, and then I run a, a technology incubator, at least a piece of it, uh, that you and I are involved in, uh, the Creative Destruction Lab, which, um, you know, is looking to take fledgling venture businesses and and uh, find ways to scale them into large companies. And so I've been running the Space Stream, a Creative Destruction Lab for years. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, plenty busy um, and a whole variety of tasks to do every day and, and quite a bit just of um, consulting with companies and public speaking and interacting and, and, um, and that long list that my wife and I made up uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, almost all of those things have, have become the recipe of our lives and worked out very well. This is sort of a bucket list. Then have you been able to tick quite a few things off? Yeah, it's more like um, a set of guidelines of um, you know of what I'm going to spend my time with. I'm really not trying to impress anybody with it, or or like just you know like hey, I, you know I want to whatever climb Everest. It's not that sort of list. You know, it's more like what um, what makes me feel like the things that I'm doing have value. You know, either personally or yeah. to other people, or to the country, or financially, or whatever, and and so yeah. trying to find that sweet spot of a long list of a, of things that I want to do every day, and that really tax me and, and make me learn things, and uh, and so yeah, that that's that's kind of uh, dictated our lives for the last decade. Yeah, no, that's great. Let me pick up on that and that you know that you made that list with your wife and on basically about what what's important to do here on Earth. So. I assume that means you would agree that sort of we basically we go to space, but we go to space in the end for the benefit of what we're doing on Earth. I, I assume, and oh, and that's uppermost in your mind all the time. Um, you know, very. I think as an astronaut, you need to be very analytical of uh, why are we doing this, and does it make sense, and how does it fit into the overall fabric, whether it's a hundred percent government-funded flight or a mixture of government and commercial, or whether even if it's a hundred percent privately funded flight, you know how does this how does this all fit together, and am am I you know doing a thing that is contributory and the amount of things that we have learned uh, about earth itself from the space station and and all the little earth observing satellites up there and also just the the science of the space station and also you know pushing back the edge of exploration of what lies beyond you know i, I always thought about that in my career and and always, if I couldn't convince myself that I was being, you know, a responsible steward of the taxpayers' money, then then I wouldn't have been in the business. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. So looking at, back at your your various trips to space over that long time frame, what is there any sort of most cherished memory or activity? Gosh, it, it's such a, a rich mixture, you know, extreme highs and lows. You know, it's a very dangerous job. I had several yeah. friends killed doing it. But at the same time, uh, to, to fly three different rocket ships, to um, to pilot a rocket ship 
and a capsule in Russian, you know, learn another language yeah. and then become the pilot of a ship like that, to have helped build two space stations, to command the International Space Station, um, but probably from a personal level to, uh, to do a spacewalk. I've done two. I've spent about 15 hours outside on spacewalks. And uh, that just from a straight sensorial overload and personal significance, doing a spacewalk is is incredible. And here in Canada, in fact, it's on our $5 bill, you know, so it's crazy while you're still alive to be on the country's money. But it's just sort of a national reflection of the fact that I was willing to take an enormous risk and then work at it for most of my adult life and then execute it properly to build the big robot arm onto the space station and experience something magnificent that's sort of brand new uh, for humanity. So yeah, it's, uh, I think if I had to coalesce it all into one amazing 15 hour period, it would be the spacewalks. So that's something I wanted to ask you about. I basically wanted to ask you about your experience, whether you did experience, and then how it was the the so-called overview effect, right? That famously, a lot of astronauts and cosmonauts report that you know they, that something is going on psychologically when you see the Earth, the round Earth for the first time, and obviously no drawn-in borders. And and somebody recently said every conflict suddenly seems to be a civil war, you know, things like that. How was that experience for you? And how was the difference inside a vehicle? And then since you have been outside, is is there a big difference with that regard? Um, yeah. Uh, well, I'll start with the second question. First, um, imagine if you're, uh, I know you're in Zurich, but wherever, what city you're in, imagine if you're in a tall skyscraper, you know, and you're way up off the ground and you're sitting at your desk, maybe near a window and you can look out the window and you can see, you know, what's going on. But if you're only, you know, two meters to your right, you're only two meters away, but you're hanging on the outside of that window, you know, you're only a a slight distance away, but the difference of the personal experience is huge. You know, suddenly you're out there in it and, and it's much more direct and visceral and personal and, and, and there's suddenly a lot more danger. And so, you know, you, you get a sense for it when you're inside the ship and you still get the beautiful views for the window, but it's still a little bit theoretical or hypothetical to actually be outside where there's nothing but the the, the curved perspex of your visor between you and the universe. Yeah. And you're just wearing a, a, an inflated cloth suit, you know, just a little one person spaceship, you know, it makes it much more intense and real. And I think the overview effect, which is the name of a book in the late sixties, Frank, mm-hmm. I Frank forget Wright. Frank, yeah, Frank Wright. Wright. Yeah. Um, you know, he'd never done it and he was just trying to guess what it was like. It's much more uh, personal than that. You know, not everybody experiences life the same way. Some people can walk into a cathedral and and go, eh, you know, what the heck, big pile of rock. And other people walk into a cathedral and start crying, you know, or yeah. into the Sistine Chapel or or get up into the mountains or, yeah. or into a, a big uh, redwood forest or something. And if you don't feel that sense of awe and proportionate size and history and age and everything in one of those magnificent places, then going to space, you're not going to, it's not going to change you. You're, you're just kind of a, you know, uh, a shallow person. But right. if you, if you recognize the wonder that exists around us, and then you can get to where you're going around the world every 90 minutes and seeing the entire um, beautiful three-dimensional textures and colors and history of it, uh, then it definitely has 
a deep perspective building influence and impact on you. And when you, at the start of this conversation, all those things I've been up to since I left the office, a lot of them have just been trying to find a way to properly share the the lucky experiences that I've had, just trying to export a little bit of that overview effect. In this regard, how do you view the sort of the the, the current um, modern day space for it? Well, I'm going to say space tourism. I'm fully aware that you know some people like the guys are going to fly in two days. They they really don't like to be called tourists, right? Because they do training and whatever. You you know what I mean? How sure. do you look upon sort of modern day space tourism? Do you think it's a it's a positive thing to have these guys going on suborbital flights and orbital flights and all of this? Well, it's it's natural and inevitable. I mean, if you look at uh, Blario or the Wright brothers or Curtis or any of the early pilots. Mm-hmm. They took enormous risks. One of the original Wright brothers just about died. Uh, I forget if it was Orville or Wilbur, but crashing that airplane, and and a lot of them died. You know, and they were they were trying to take humanity into the third dimension for, on a powered machine for the very first time. Very risky, but they recognized that this is going to change a lot of things. You know, transportation, speed, awareness, uh, perspective of the world. But within fifteen or twenty years, there were airlines. You know, Wright Brothers flew in 03, yeah. and by 1920 or 21 or something, KLM was already forming as an airline. And so now a rich person could just buy a ticket and sit in the back and have no skills at all and take advantage of this technology. But that's that's kind of what it's for. You know, it's not just for the pilots or, or for the risk takers, but it ought to be serving humanity in some way. And that includes all of the freight and everything we fly around the yep. world, but also the, the tourists, you know, and yep. nothing wrong with, with someone understanding the world better through tourism. And space is the same thing. And it's still really early and it's yep. still therefore dangerous and therefore very expensive. And and we don't have our regulatory system has not caught up like always, like it yep. was in 1920 with aviation yep. or 1910 with cars. You know, the tech, the, the regulations have not caught up with the technology. Imagine if you were driving your car and there were no stop signs, no rules of the road, no licenses, no yep. gas stations. You know, it's just a you know, big free for all. You just go drive wherever you want. And that's sort of you know where we are in in space flight, but we're you know there there's international organizations working on it, and we'll we'll get it sorted out. But um, I think it's natural, and it's not like there's a limited amount of space to go explore for the professional astronauts. You know, yes. so the little bit of suborbital or just getting into orbit, you know, that, that's that's a natural first stepping stone, but. We're, we're going to start settling the moon over the next couple of decades and then beyond that. And, and that's an enormous amount of work for professional astronauts like myself. So I'm, uh, I, I think it's natural, inevitable. And our job now is to make it safe and make it uh, as, as well regulated and good for humanity as we can make it. So, so on that, on the sort of safety aspect and that we're going to go progressively out hopefully further and further, right? And by the way, even with tourism, right? Because you can today go to SpaceX and book a circumlunar flight that is actually, and and people are making bookings. Do you think, so you have spent, I think from memory, even even up to five months or so a time in space, 
right? Yeah. So you've experienced sort of the changes the body goes through and all of that, how the space environment really affects you also, not, not only psych, well, both psychologically and physiologically. So do you think the broader public is prepared? Is, it some, is there something we're underestimating or overestimating? Do we have a good understanding of what space flight really involves for a broader public? Well, you know, for a suborbital flight like uh, Virgin Galactic or Blue mm. Origin gives, that's just kind of an elaborate uh, ride, you know, and, and yeah. you, you need a little bit of preparation, get ready for the emergencies and such, but but it's quick enough um, and close enough to an earthbound experience that, you know, a 90-year-old like William Shatner, you know, the actor who played yeah. Captain Kirk on Star Trek, he can do it. A 90-year-old and an 83-year-old or 82-year-old like Wally Funk, you know, they can do those flights. Uh, so that type of flight, uh, that can easily get into rapidly uh, to air pretty much everybody. But if you're going to go up for a while, it typically takes about three to one to recover. Uh, you know, for if you spent three hours in space, it would or it would take nine hours to recover, or ten days in space, thirty days to recover. So in my case, half a year in space, a year and a half for your body to get back to normal. So when we start looking at longer duration flights for non-professional astronauts, you know, it, it, they need to really look at the overall thing. It's not just a joyride. You know, they're going to have to recognize what this means in their whole life. But it's the same as the people who sign up, say, to sail across the Atlantic or yep. climb Mount Everest or, or whatever. There's there's a lot of overhead and people die doing it. And you have to decide, hey, is this an adventure that's interesting to me? Does it serve any purpose? Is it just for fun? Or maybe there's a scientific component. And the three uh, paying passengers on AX1, the Axiom flight, sure, it's costing them a lot of money, but you know they earned their money and they've decided to spend it on this thing. But they're not just going as, as looky-loo tourists. Mm -hmm. Each of them is basically behaving like the payload specialists, the early scientists who flew on the space shuttle. But instead of it being so expensive that only a country could afford to pay for the ticket, now the cost has come down enough that an individual can afford to pay for the ticket. And so long as there's a, a strong scientific component and research and including hospitals and research institutions, it's really not that different. And, and so we just all have to recognize that things change and and uh, and people are just people and try and figure out how to balance it all. Yeah. And then you, of course, besides uh, doing EVA and putting, you know, putting together the arm, the robotic arm and um, and doing many experiments as well, I'm sure you have famously played music in space. What motivated you to do that? Oh, I've always been a musician. I've played music everywhere I've ever gone. I was at music practice last night. We have a, uh, we raise money for the Children's Hospital in Toronto and we're having a big music night. We've already raised about $50,000 for tomorrow night. So it's great. Um, so I, and I've fronted bands my whole life and always been a musician. So that's not going to change just because you leave Earth. Um, and fortunately, the Russians, you know, for all their failings, uh, just like every country, there's good and bad. Russia's behaving horrifically right now, but they're not the only nation in the world that has behaved horrifically in history. And it's unforgivable when it happens. But you can't just focus, I think, on the worst things that happen. There are also always other things that are happening. And, and there are you know people who are doing good things. And so one thing about going around the world 2,600 times 
is I think it's given me a little more balanced view of the scope of human behavior and of the depth and age of history. And the Russians recognized early on that we're just people on a spaceship and the things that keep us healthy, mentally healthy, we're going to need those up there too. And so they've had musical instruments on their space stations Mm. stations since since at least the 80s, if not the 70s. And when, when I went up to help build the Russian space station Mir in 95, there was this old guitar, a Russian guitar up there that had been up, I think they brought it up on Salyut 6 and transferred it to Mir. And so the American psychologists and crew support people, they went, you know what, music, that people need music. It's everywhere on earth. Yeah. Just because you leave Earth doesn't mean you suddenly don't want to have music in your life anymore. And so they went out and bought a guitar and put it on the International Space Station in the summer of 2001. And that's the guitar that's still up there right now, 21 years later. And that's the one that I played almost every day that I was up there. And that I decided I wrote and recorded a whole album of music when I was supposed to be asleep up there. I would steal a couple hours to write and record every night. And uh, and then I did a cover of uh, Bowie's Space Oddity that, gosh, That's hundreds true. of millions of people have seen. Even Bowie loved it, you know, have seen since. So uh, to me, it's just we're just people and we're exploring. But all of our culture and our history and our art, it comes along with us and evolves with us. And I think it's great that there, uh, there's music on the spaceship. No, and I'm, I'm very grateful for, for you doing this because I mean, I, for what it's worth, I tend to agree. I particularly think that if we want to go to space as humanity rather than just humans, we have, like you say, we have to take all of these things that make us humans with us, right? And that certainly includes yeah. the arts. Uh, I would say it includes things also like sports, which, which of course you have to do mandatorily on the space station. <laughs> so your bones yeah. are I think though, I've, I thought about it up there though, Raphael, you know, without gravity, you can invent all new sporting games, yep. you know? So, so uh, I know that people in Canada that live in the far North, so, th- you know, a, a very different environment that uh, they have a different sports, right? Yes. When, when there's Arctic games, the competitions are, are a different set of games because they're driven by the environment that the people live in and, and it'll be the same in weightlessness. So uh, who knows what, you know, three weightless football or, or, or whatever basketball or volleyball or something will look like. Um, but yeah, yeah, you need to exercise to stay fit too, but you need all those things just to stay physically and mentally healthy, no matter where you are. Yeah. And so arts, sports, and the other one I would argue, and I know this is a bit more complicated, is like things like romance and then ultimately having families in other places, which we probably have to figure out a few sort of physiological things. Still, but. Well, right now, we don't know if uh, complex animals like mammals mm. uh, can successfully uh, raise a child. Like, will it develop properly yeah. in its mother's womb? And then once delivered, Without the constant influence of gravity, how would uh, a growing child develop? Would it build the same balance system? Would it integrate your balance system with your vision? You know, you and I can close our eyes and we know which way up is. But if you've never felt gravity until you're 21 years old or whatever, would you even be able to function? We don't know the answer to those questions, whether your, your body would even develop the right musculature and everything without gravity. So, or, or is the moon's gravity? enough one six yeah. gravity that might not be enough it may be that we can never uh have children on the moon just because they won't grow properly we don't know the answer to the question so so yeah it's it's one of the great unknowns out there uh whether 
we can settle on the moon or Mars or a space station or, or you know, interstellar travel. It's one of the things we don't have conclusive answers to yet. Yeah, it always strikes me as something we should really start putting research in because I, I suspect people are going to be more hesitant to settle places like Mars if you tell them, like, look, you can have a family there, which is at the end of the day, right. maybe people disagree, but the most important activity we do as humans. Well, if, if our women have to come back to Earth yeah. uh, to have to raise, you know, to to uh, have children and then the children need to be raised on Earth, then obviously that that changes the whole plan and you would need to have spinning spaceships but you know you need yeah. to rethink the whole thing or if you were born and raised on the moon or born and raised on mars then just the recognition that you could never return to earth you know that that's not necessarily a deal breaker but it, it yeah. sure is uh you know not what we think right now but it may turn out to be that way yeah something to, to think about is our future like um depicted as in the expanse I don't know you watch the expanse right where you get almost like a different type of not a different type of race but humans who are so adapted right that they will have problems to come back to sure earth. well you know it's not that different than on earth if you've spent your entire life in the high arctic or your entire life at the equator it's yeah. not easy to go to a part of the world where the environment is radically different or if you've spent your whole life at sea level and then you move to la paz you know at high altitude yeah you're not physiologically uh, ready for the big change, and it'll just be dramatically different when it's gravity that we're changing. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly fair enough. So speaking about the moon and the Mars, I mean, I assume you're following all of this with great interest as well. We have many sort of robotic missions going to the moon soon, Artemis 3, a crewed mission, well, target 2025, you know, we'll see. And then of course, there's Mars. When, when do you think we might have a human on Mars? One of my good friends in the astronaut office was one of the legends. He was one of my neighbors, a guy named John Young. He did, mm -hmm. you know, he flew in Gemini. He, he walked on the moon. He did the first flight of the space shuttle. Legend of a guy. And I like John because he was a real practical engineering test pilot. But John used to say, Mars is further away than most people think. And he sort of said it, you know, with this as a joke, but it's true. Mars yeah. is is way, way harder to get to and to live on than most people would like to think. You know, the moon is three days away. Mars is six months away. And uh, and once you fire, your, at least with the engines we have right now, once you fire your engines and commit to going to Mars, you basically can't get back to Earth for at least a year. And so no matter what fails on your ship, no matter what goes wrong, you have just committed to a year of complete isolation from Earth where you have to solve all your own problems, you know, except they may be able to radio you advice, you know. So that is, is a really complex uh, mission to be on and one with, therefore, a very high level of danger and, and risk to human life. So the moon's only three days. And, and if you get something wrong, like we showed in Apollo, 13, where it goes tragically wrong, we still got everybody safely back. Um, and I think we have a tremendous amount to learn and invent and test and prove before we're going to, with any confidence at all, launch people towards Mars, uh, unless there's a hugely compelling reason. You know, if, if Earth is threatened, or, or, or some subset of humanity is seriously threatened, they might think it's it's a good trade-off. Already, there's a big risk to my life, so, yeah. so here's a risk I'm willing to take. And that's what's driven a lot of human exploration and settlement in the past. You know, yes. people have got, sought a better life somewhere else. So that might happen, but 
just on the pattern of rocket development and um, and possibility right now, I'm unconvinced that we will send people to Mars with the current engine technology that exists. I think we may need like to have fusion fuel yes. so that then you can get there so much more quickly, and, uh, which decreases the risk, or maybe some other type of fuel. But with just burning dinosaurs, essentially, you know, burning fossil fuels uh, and then coasting for six months, um, yeah. unless there's a really compelling reason uh, to take that huge risk and spend all that money, I'll be kind of surprised if we do it. So to answer your question, when? I think we still have to invent some key technologies before we will readily send people to Mars. And it's really hard to predict how long it's going to take to invent things. No, I see where you're coming from. And you actually made a really good point about the sort of this inability, at least with current propulsion and sort of the, the Delta V budgets and you have to kind of just uh, change your mind in the middle of the way. I actually often make the comparison um, sort of like long range space exploration to explore, certain exploration on Earth, you know, like, for example, the Antarctic explorers, which were also, you know, very long, extremely dangerous trips. But of course, you're right, they could actually they, at any point in time, they could have decided to turn around. And that really is a big difference. Yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, although Shackleton, they, they, they got stuck in the ice. Uh, but, I mean, a harrowing experience. And they managed to not lose a person. They were all men, didn't lose a man. But, um, and, you know, we learned a little bit, but mostly it was just a, a story of human survival. It would really, we didn't learn a lot about Antarctica. It, it was mostly just a great human triumph under self-inflicted adversity, you know, yes. which is okay. But it, it would be better if we could send robots and they could take all the early risks. And then once we understand things and have raised our technology to a level enough that we we don't have to take a huge personal risk and still get there and still bring the benefits back. To me, that's, yeah, you still need human adventure. But to me, that's maybe uh, the more logical trade. Yeah, so we certainly have ways, like you said, these days to de-risk things materially, which we didn't have in Shackleton's days, the center robotic, right. Right. robotic uh, probes. So, well, by the way, you'd be happy to hear that my in my main activity, my, my venture fund, we actually have invested in a fusion propulsion company. High, ah. high risk, but if it works, we can go to Hamas. In well, I, I'm going to visit one of the fusion companies uh, very shortly or next week, General Fusion, which is a Canadian uh, fusion company. They have really interesting technology, and they think they are practically getting quite close. And people have been saying that for a long time. But yeah. uh, as soon as we can release you know, the just in this fork, those little atoms in there, if we could just somehow release the energy that was trapped into that metal that a star put in there uh, without having a tremendous amount of pollution like like nuclear fission gives us, nuclear fusion, to me, it will solve an enormous number of the world's problems that will go a long way towards solving a lot of the societal and geopolitical issues yes. that we have. Uh, you know, and, and uh, there, there's tremendous historical evidence to show that um, uneven distribution of, of energy and, and the wealth and the quality of life that goes along with that has been a huge driver of, of a lot of the bad things that have happened. So a universal provision of a guarantee of large amounts of power electrical power uh, allows for a much improved quality of life in a sustainable way for the whole planet. So it's a really important technology. And I think it also might be the one that takes us to Mars. Yes. 
Absolutely. So talking about Mars, but also beyond Mars, is there any other sort of things in space, future space exploration that that you find really exciting, like places we could go, um, new research we could do? Well, the, the big question to me, Raphael, um, that we don't know the answer to is, uh, are there aliens or not? And um, obviously, lots of people are fascinated by UFOs, and and, uh, and that's, you know, that's cool and interesting. But the, the bottom line is, we have no hard evidence of life anywhere no. except Earth. No, zero. Lots of conjecture, lots of wishing and stuff, but no actual evidence of life anywhere but Earth. And we're drilling around on Mars, you know, right now, uh, and maybe we'll find fossils on Mars, which answers the question pretty well. The James Webb telescope, though, is so, and it looks like, you know, touch wood, but it looks like they built that thing properly, so it's going to work. It's going to be able to see the atmosphere of yeah. planets around other stars clearly enough that we we could maybe determine whether there's an industrialized population on that planet or not. You know, it, it's it's not probable, but it's possible that James Webb Telescope may find a world that has strong evidence of life. And to me, that's the next big and maybe the biggest unknown question for the following reason. Are we alone in the universe or not? Because if we're not alone, then what are we going to do with that information and how are we going to try and communicate and should we try and solve the enormous engineering and physics problems to maybe travel uh, in between stars interstellar so that's an interesting side but the other side is if we are actually an incredibly rare thing of an intelligent species on a planet if there's no evidence of any other intelligent life out there then that should be a huge slap in the face to us all uh, of just how important it is to do this right the the responsibility that we have uh, after four and a half billion years of development on earth if we are the first to have risen to this level of self-awareness and ability to determine our own futures and we just squander it because of our lack of foresight you know that would be tragic and so i think that's a really important lesson to try and internalize as well if we are that rare then it should redouble our necessity to be better stewards of our own home world and to think about how it is that we that we treat each other and the planet yeah it's an it's 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 such an interesting question we could spend like probably just hours talking about that right and connected to that is the so-called fermi paradox right which is the situation we're in right now which is like we kind of get this increasing evidence that there probably should be a lot of life in the universe just probabilistically right and and things like uh, space telescopes or uh, just the increasing number of exoplanets and actually exoplanets which have a uh, which are rocky exoplanets and within the so-called habitable zone yeah we, so ju- we just like, saw our five thousandth planet right it's amazing the number we've amazing. seen yeah so it seems like okay life should be really but then why is there nobody talking to us right this, <laughs> yeah this is the family paradox and then people have really interesting theories around about that and it, it turns up in science fiction as well if you read the um the three-body problem the uh, i haven't read that, that. Oh, is that is that a Chinese book originally? Yes, it's originally yeah. Chinese book. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's a good book. But it occurred to me while I was orbiting the world, Raphael, um, because you see the whole world, what you don't normally get, even living in Zurich or living here in Toronto, um, because of weather and because of civilization, you don't get direct evidence of the age of the world. 
it's hard to see and get any gut feel of what four and a half billion years actually means. But when you orbit the world, suddenly the world becomes a planet. It's not your home. It's a planet. And you can see where the continents fit together. And you can see the scars of the uh, asteroids that have hit it and all kinds of things. And suddenly you start to get an intuitive sense of the rough and rugged and ancient nature of our planet. And you could maybe start to understand what four and a half billion years, but what overlaid on top of that for me was there is hard evidence of life on earth for four of those four and a half billion years. Uninterrupted life for four billion years, but only very recently did that life evolve into anything intelligent. And so when I started, when I turned and then looked out at the universe, I thought, well, maybe that's why. Maybe life is common, but it's it's just scum. You know, it's blue-green yep. algae and moss and stuff. Um, but intelligent life, we have zero evidence that there has been intelligent life up until quite recently on Earth. And at our level of intelligence, never. I mean, otherwise there should have been geostationary satellites from some previous civilization. You know, there is no evidence that there has been our level of intelligence ever on Earth. And so maybe life is common and intelligent life is extremely rare. And that that may answer Fermi's paradox. Yeah. And it still supports your, it's still the same point you're making that yeah. if, even if intelligent life is there, we still have that responsibility to, to then protect the intelligent life because yeah, it seems I, to be so rare that the simple life progresses to an intelligent life. How, how to convince people to behave that way though, you know, that's another <laughs> problem. We're all just imperfect people. But, you know, yeah. the world has never fed as many people as it did today, you know, because yeah. our numbers are increasing. And this, the average quality of life of each human has never been as high in all of human history as it is right now. The life expectancy, uh, infant mortality, you know, the just two long lifetimes ago. Yeah, the oldest person in the world is 119. But if you yeah. just go 200 years ago to, to 1822, half of everybody died as a child. 50% of everybody in the world died as a child. Um, and 90% of the world lived in abject poverty. Yeah. That two lifetimes ago. And on, on the back of, of technology, we have raised it to an unprecedentedly good level, not in a sustainable way, but but uh, to a level that is tremendous in history. So now our, our big problem is how can we continue that, but turn the energy production and the food production uh, and the control of pollutions and such uh, and have our population peak out at what's it going to peak out nine or 10 billion and do it in a way that's sustainable for the planet. It's not an unsolvable problem, but, but, you know, you, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here and just condemn ourselves. You know, um, there are ways to solve this, but we also do need to recognize just what a rare moment of capability and potential we are in human history and, and in the history of our home planet. Yeah, fully agreed. And the fascinating thing is that, and, and like you, I'm a, complete optimism on, you know, on humanity and what humanity is achieving. I'm, I mean, I have to be a venture capitalist, but <laughs> it's, it's always important to point out we've made all of this progress while at the same time, humanity has continuously committed like terrible crimes and done terrible things, but we kind of did the positive stuff too. And we just talked about Shackleton, right? And many people forget Shackleton's expedition happened in the middle of the first world war, right? So these things right. can happen even at terrible times. Yeah. But speaking of venture capital and optimism, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, um, you mentioned the Creative Destruction Lab. 
Actually, I think we may have not even mentioned it by name yet, but that's what you referred to as the, the incubator with the space stream, which um, you, I think, founded or helped to co-found and where I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to serve as a, as a mentor. What made, you, um, what made you do that? Why, why did you set up the Creative Destruction Lab space stream? When my wife and I made up that list of what we wanted to accomplish in our life, um, a, a lot of it was how could I take the experiences I've gathered so far, the things that I know, the things that I understand, the things that I've, I've, I've become expert in, how can I um, apply those to an existing situation on earth that will, that will help make things better? You know, um, how can I teach or enable or, or uh, you know, support or advise or whatever? And so the folks at the Creative Destruction Lab, um, specifically a man named Jay Agrawal, he, he was looking, he's a very far thinking individual, but he was looking at the, because of the drop of cost of launch, of sort of the revolution that's happening in spaceflight and, and earth space commerce, and he recognized, hey, there's going to be a lot of opportunity here, and we should maybe not just have a technological stream for artificial intelligence or uh, crypto or cities or medicine or whatever, but we should have one for space. And so he asked me to found it uh, several years ago, and it met all of my sort of objectives of a, a real challenge, uh, taking advantage of new technology to solve an old problem, uh, bringing a bunch of people together that otherwise might not be working together, and at, along the way, solving problems and maybe building, you know, uh, wealth for whatever country the people are built or working in. And so I just thought this is going to be an interesting challenge, and let's see if we can make this work. And the Creative Destruction Lab itself has generated billions of dollars worth mm -hmm. of financial value mm -hmm. over its eight or nine years. And but even within the space stream, we've generated uh, it's in the hundreds of millions. You know, it, it's it's been really positively contributing as well. So, you know, you know, I'm 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 working directly with multiple companies. I'm on the board of some space and some non-space and all the other stuff I'm up to. But I spend a lot of time working with Creative Destruction Lab because I think it's a really clever model for ideas, incubation, um, but it also brings people together that otherwise wouldn't be talking to each other. You know, folks very heavily on the business success side, like yourself, folks on the real hardcore engineering and physics yeah, side, yeah. folks on the operational side who have to take it out into the field, and then folks on the, you know, how do you, how do you actually, not just the financial side, but how do you build a business from nothing uh, and and bringing all that stuff together as like a crucible. Uh, I, I find it a really great learning and productive environment. And, and so, you know, that's what brought me to CDL. And, and that's why I, uh, I'm, it's a big part of what I do every single week uh, now as part of my life. Yeah. And there's basically um, just to give people a bit more details, there's one cohort basically per year. There is uh, four, four times we all meet in the community and sort of meet the startups and, and talk about their, the, the, the objectives that are coming up. And if I'm not mistaken, the current application process for the next cohort is open right now, just in case we, we often have um, entrepreneurs yes. listening to this podcast so they know that they can apply. Yeah, so if, if you think that maybe some project you're working on or some idea might have any sort of space application uh, that could grow into some sort of business, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, using data from satellites to help farmers be more productive, or, mm -hmm. or is there a way to refine GPS signals in order to serve some other purpose, or, or uh, 
you know, can we use space to monitor greenhouse gas uh, uh, expulsion? Or is there a way to communicate better? Or could we build better ways of communicating with our satellites to make it more readily available to everybody? That, there's a whole spectrum of stuff. Or if you're an investor who's interested, you know, in making money in that area. Yeah, um, yeah we, we are actively currently recruiting mentors, but also uh, the ventures themselves. And we'll be interviewing a bunch over the summer and come about August, we'll start to choose which 25 or 30 um, will be going through the system. And we have uh, a space cohort that is run through Toronto, and then we have one that's run through Paris, and we have one that's run through Atlanta in the in the United States. Um, and, and so it's, it's a global incubator. And you mentioned it briefly, but the way that we do it um, is, is like no other incubator that I know of. The, the, how the, all the mentors volunteer their time, how the people can be rewarded, how the process works. And it's a really proven model. And that's why it's become uh, multinational. So yeah, if you've got an interest, just go to, you know, Creative Destruction Lab and, and have a look. And uh, I sure would welcome uh, the ideas or the extra, you know, human uh, human power to make it all work. And, and as certainly as a, as a mentor now for a little bit over two years, I can certainly confirm and attest to all of this. I think it's an absolutely fantastic incubator. And so, yeah, if people think it can add value to their to their entrepreneurship, they should certainly apply. And we put the the website in the show notes to make it easier for Oh, them. great. Thanks. So, so Chris, since you are seeing so many, you know, commercial space ventures these days at, at CDL, but also through your you know, board positions and all of that, is there anything that you're particularly excited about besides nuclear fusion propulsion? The, yeah, the thing that I'm most excited about is the uh, drop of cost of access to space. Um, you know, you don't have to go far into human history to look for parallels in other in other industries, you know, whether it's the invention of uh, ships that could sail out of sight of land, navigation capabilities, the invention of the railway, um, you know, invention of the car, invention of the airplane, they all radically changed um, business opportunities. Uh, and but also just human capability. And what has radically changed over the last decade in space is uh, is automation uh, so that things could become safer and simpler. You know, when I first flew in space, it took a huge amount of human judgment, real time, just to be able to safely fly in space at all. And my first space flight on the space shuttle, the odds on that day of dying were one in 38. I mean, just, just to get wow. to space, you know, so you can't run a business uh, or any sort of big commercial model when you're gonna have that many accidents. But we've come a long way since then. And there are lots of companies, SpaceX is leading the way, but there are lots of other companies out there. Rocket Lab is just about to uh, retrieve its first stage using a helicopter. And there's Chinese companies doing it, European companies that are working on it. And Starship that SpaceX is just about to- I was to gonna ask, yeah. Yeah, that, that has, I mean, it's already, uh, you know, almost a hundred times cheaper to put something into space than when I first went into space. Imagine on in any other business, if you could suddenly drop the cost by a hundred times, what used to be a hundred euros was one euro. It just opens up, you know, imagine if, you know, instead of your airline ticket to travel to Tenerife, you know, instead of being 300 euros, if it was three euros, just think how that would change your decision-making. And, and Starship, has the opportunity to drop it by another factor of 10. And to me, that is the huge radical change that's going on right now. It opens up Earth and orbit, Earth and space commerce 
to all kinds of things that didn't used to be practical. And that's why there's whole ideas of commercial space stations, commercial space manufacturer, you know, rather than building power lines and, and all the infrastructure we build on the surface, if you can just stick it in orbit, you know, uh, for a reasonable cost, then you got to really think about, hey, maybe that's the better trade-off. But it also opens up the moon. And yep. uh, if you can get there, if you could get to the moon for 20 bucks, uh, you know, you would rethink the business opportunities, you know. Um, and so where is that sweet spot of cost versus benefit? The moon, if you laid it out on a map, is bigger than Africa. And Africa is huge. And it's basically yep. completely untapped. It's this enormous geology that there is no life on. So we're not disrupting life at all. And yet tremendous un, unexplored opportunity. We've literally just scratched the surface of the moon. Yep. And, and that's where also our technology is taking us right now. So we're at a moment in history where it's sort of like the invention of the wheel or uh, or of the car or the airplane of the train. And, um, and we've been working on it for 60 years. But this radical drop of cost, because computers and hypersonic aerodynamics and things have gotten so good, to me, that's the real exciting thing going on right now. And, and that's opening up uh, exploration and space commerce in an unprecedented way. So here's one of my, and I, I agree with everything you said there, and, and the cost decreases are really dramatic, right? You mentioned the railroads, and I've actually done this research for one of the books I wrote that um, the railroads compared to stagecoaches, which was the other mode of transportation before, it, it dropped the cost by about 85%. So actually, oh, I Starship, didn't know. Huh. So, so in Starship, we're actually talking much more than that, right? It's, it's a yeah. really big change. But so one of the, um, I'm going to say concern, because I can't think of a better word I have right now is what I see every day in my world as a venture capitalist to, to realize all of this potential, this enormous potential that's there. We need kind of more of everything. We, we need more entrepreneurs. Because one thing that's happening right now is you can see that even in CDL that most entrepreneurs are basically people who already were in the space industry or, you know, have like, you know, aerospace background or something. And, and I think we need to bring in people from other backgrounds, right? So if they want to do something, for example, for agricultural insurance, then I'd love to have people who are from agriculture and insurance and we teach them a little bit space stuff or we pair them up with a space CDO or something, right? So I think we're constrained of entrepreneurs. I think we're still constrained on investors. That's funny me saying that as an investor, but I would love to have more generalist investors. I think we're sort of constrained on just general, like a politician's understanding, understanding of corporates, how space could benefit whatever they're doing, like non-space corporates, right? And governments and even frankly, general influencers, right? You, I mean, you probably like everybody else, you, you notice the Super Bowl ad with the Salesforce ad with Matthew McConaughey, right? And yeah. many of us in the community thought that was a little bit unfortunate. So this is a very long-winded way of saying, I think we need to get the message out much, much more. And you're sort of one of the best known, I think it's fair to say one of the best known faces of space, so to say, as, a, as an influencer, as an educator. Is there something else that we can do, that we should do to get the message out more? Well, number one is uh, not worry about it. That's normal. You know, that's yeah. just uh, one, one of the great French thinkers um, at about the time that Europe was becoming aware of North America. But Voltaire, so he described uh, Canada as a few acres of snow and rock. And, and that's how it looked to him from the comfort and the complexity and the knowns and the, uh, the regularity of his life in France. He was like, why would we even think about this 
this undeveloped nothingness that is out there, all that distance away. And and that at the time, that was kind of a natural way to react, you know. Um, but just think of what history has actually revealed. Uh, and, and, you know, the hundreds of millions of people that live in the Americas and the huge influence and change that that has wrought um, in just a few human lifetimes. And so there's a lot of people look at space travel and look at the moon the same way. They're going, well, we already got problems right here. Why on earth would we think about that? And it'll take, you know, when you give an actor some lines uh, in the Super Bowl, he'll read them with confidence, you know, but um, they're just repeating that same small-minded thinking that Voltaire had. Mm. And um, the reality is, uh, if if our technology is giving us access to a whole new human capability, then that is going to inevitably get integrated into commerce and into human life f- fairly rapidly. And uh, the people who can see that early and then the people who can be part of it are, are the ones who are not only the visionaries, but also the ones who stand you know, to, to benefit the most from it at first. Um, and so you need to decide what, what role you want to have in all of that. Am I just going to go, you know what, we've been working and inventing and changing for 300,000 years as a species, but I think we should stop right now because we've pretty much done everything we need to do. We don't need to expand or explore or change, you know, and obviously that's a silly way of thinking, but it's a pretty common way of thinking. And, um, or are those those famous quotes from the patent boards, you know, saying, well, we've pretty much invented everything that's ever going to be invented. And so we might need to close the patent office, you know? um, So uh, I think it's, it's important to look at what is just barely possible uh, or what is imaginable. And then when are the trigger points of human inventiveness turning what used to be imaginable or barely possible into almost practical. And once you hit that point, whether it is building a starship or whether it is fusion energy or something, as soon as that happens, how is that going to open up new opportunities? And and then how are we going to react to that capability? Imagine uh, a million years ago when someone first said, you know what, I know how to bring fire to our cave. A lot of people went, hey, we've been living in caves for a long time. And why do we want fire in here? It's all smoky. Seems seems dangerous. (laughs) You know, and there's danger. And why would we want that? Um, You know, that's just human nature. Change is hard. Um, So I think uh, it's important to push the technology to each of our own individuals, individual capabilities. And I've always tried to do that. Understand it and then push the edge of it. But then also to let other people know about it. And that's why I write books and do TV series. And, you know, I did One Strange Rock on, on uh, National Geographic oh. um, to, to try and let people see where we are in history and what may be coming next, realistically, not just the fanciful stuff. Um, and then that's why I teach at university, because so many of those students are going to be the ones that are going to enact a lot of these changes. And that's why I'm involved in developing the companies and then in things like a tech incubator, like the Creative Destruction Lab. Um, and But, you know, I, I, that's why I'm talking to you, because um, it's it's much more comforting to be complacent and yes. and, and and not to take a risk or, or not even to take a mental leap. Um, but that's where the future is. 
and, and that's where we're going to end up. And, and the folks that can anticipate it and see it and then make the early moves to be part of it, um, they stand the greatest chance uh, of benefiting from it and helping to shape how it develops. Yeah. And, and to me, that's, you know, if I'm making up my list of what I want to do in life, that's the most exciting stuff, you know. I don't want to just spend the rest of my life looking backwards on the things that I've already done. You know, I can't change those. That's just got me to where I am right now. So, yeah, I think there's a necessity to be working hard to solve the problems, but also to be a little bit evangelical in how it's happening so that maybe other people, as you say, even if they're not directly in the field, could start to realize that I don't know anything about satellites, but I sure like this new GPS capability yep. and what it can do for me. And and, uh, and and there's a lot of you know potential there right across the whole board of a lot of different businesses. Yeah, and we're all, we're all I think very thankful that you know you could have just retired and sort of you know <laughs> done other things, and you you are choosing to spend your time and sort of helping to get the message out. And so we've we've mentioned a few ways already how you're getting the message out, like to teaching and CDL. But there's one thing which I really did want to reserve the last 10 minutes of this podcast for is because you just actually wrote a, a not a, you've obviously written nonfiction and biographical books, but you actually just wrote a novel called The Apollo Murders, which I've had the pleasure to to read while I've, I'm sort of three quarters through it. Um, oh, good. I think it's an, you know, I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you today, I think it's an absolute page turner. Um, I, I'm really enjoying it a lot. If you're three quarters of the way through, there's some pretty interesting stuff about to happen in that book. Yeah. Yeah. I have a copy. I have a copy. I keep it on my desk. The Apollo murders. It's in, um, or it's in the process of being translated into, I think 13 or 14 languages. And here's, here's some brand new news, Raphael. And that is, uh, it's in a production house now to be made into an eight part, uh, series as well. on like Apple TV okay. or Hulu or something like that. So, so yeah. And, I'm writing the next book in the series right now after the Apollo murders as well. So yeah, who knew I'm a, a international best-selling fiction writer now, you know, and what a, what a fun challenge that is. And you've actually just answered two of the questions I was going to ask you, basically, <laughs> which is there going to be a movie or TV series and are you writing? <laughs> okay, good. Well, I, yeah, you know, I think as you've seen in the book, it's quite, you know, when, when I flew in space on my three space flights, you, you just, you end up taking a lot of photographs because it's so cinematographic. I mean, everything you see is just magnificent. It's beautiful. You know how gorgeous a sunrise can be. Imagine if you're just surrounded by a beautiful sunrise in the mountains all the time. You know, it just it lends itself to, to the screen and the and the book does that. So. So, yeah, we thought, well, and we had lots of production houses who were interested um, and uh, and we head down to the final three, and we're just just signing now with it's a British uh, production house called Altitude that that's going to be uh, working to to write the screenplay and then make the you know and you still got to have a screenplay and a pilot and some one of the distributors got to pick it up so there's no guarantees but it's well on its way and and pretty pretty exciting thing for me to be involved in you know it'd be a lot of fun yeah. to share all these ideas and this story and help people think about the future in a different way, uh, all sort of that came from my own imagination. And I think it's also fantastic because, you know, I think it, I, I really believe it will help to bring even more people to space in a roundabout way, right? Because there may be people who are picking this up because they think, oh, this sounds like an interesting sort of like page-turning novel, and it happens to be about space, but they wouldn't have bought, you know, like a nonfiction book about space. 
Yeah. And, and yeah, my first book is Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. You know, it's it's how to live a better life, but but it's obviously the life of an astronaut. And so it's very space related. And a lot of people just don't, oh, I'm not interested in space. But that's part of the reason I recorded Space Oddity, because lots of people love music and love Bowie. And you suddenly, almost without planning to, you see what it's like on a spaceship, you know, just because yeah. of the visual, visceral nature of that video. And so to be able to tell the story of space flight, not just um, factually, but through fiction, suddenly you can bring in a lot more richness and, uh, and, and nuance and human reaction that makes it, I think, uh, easier to understand. And easier to internalize. So, so I'm pleased that so many, you know, millions of people now have read this book, and uh, and, and I'm looking forward to, you know, being able to write the next one. And the, the you know, the characters Kaz and Laura and Svetlana and right. and all the rest of them. You know, this is you're not seeing the last of them in the Apollo murders, except of course those who died. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, uh, murders plural. At least two people died. At least two people died. The the other thing I did, I did a master class as well. I taught a master yes. class. And that's a lovely fusion of technology, giving people access to ideas in a way that they might not have. And it's really clever construct. It's like a little, you know, university uh, primer online. And I was really pleased that they asked me to do one on exploration. And um, and and it it has had millions of people. Gosh, you know, tens of millions around the world that that have taken advantage of the easy delivery. You know, just right there on your iPad, you can be one on one with you know Annie Leibovitz or uh, or one of the architects or one of the chefs. Or or, or Ron Howard, one of the actor directors, or whomever, or or a space explorer like myself, and it, it's another way to uh, to give people a direct enough personal understanding that maybe it will shift their perception of the world slightly, such that they will make different choices, different decisions in the things that they're going to do in the future. Which, as a teacher, uh, that's what you're always hoping for that you've given people a curiosity and an insight that they will actually change what they're doing with their life to maybe be more insightful and more productive. Yeah, inspiration basically. And who knows, maybe they'll start even a space company or, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So there's one thing while you mentioned, and by the way, we're gonna put um, to the audience, we're gonna put uh, links to both the book as well as Masterclass in the show notes, again, to make it easy for everybody. Thanks. But, one thing I did want to mention about Apollo murders while you're talking about teaching. So one thing I really enjoyed about the book. So, so I obviously through my job have hopefully a certain knowledge already on concepts in space and including technology. But for somebody who's fresh to space, in the Apollo murders, even though it's a novel, you actually learn about mission design, about spacecraft design, about what life is like on, in, in the capsule. You learn about lunar geology. I mean, I found that was actually some of the, the most amazing parts of the book. So I yeah, I, I wanted, you know, right. obvious as an astronaut, I, I needed the book to be right. You know, I can't just yeah. make goofy stuff up, you know, like so many uh, books and movies are where it's just silly if, if you have any idea. But that's not just in space. You know, if you watch a, a doctor show or a police show or something, you yeah. just, oh, it's, you know, it's the, the whole CSI series and everything. It's just silly, you know, yeah. but it's kind of fun. But since I am an astronaut, you know, and my name affiliated with it, it has to ring true. And and so, yeah, the part of the fun in writing the Apollo murders 
was the tremendous amount of research that I needed to do, even coupled with my own personal experience yeah. to make sure that I had all the details right. And then make get, getting it proofread by Apollo astronauts and engineers and you know helicopter pilots and all the experts to make sure that I hadn't made any stupid mistakes in the book. And if I've done it right, and uh, judging by the reactions that a lot of people think I have, um, the story is really compelling and, and you know you just want to yes. turn the page. But it along is. the way, uh, you you gain insight into how it all works. You know how how does all this work, and how do they all? How do those processes happen? How do people interact? What's it actually like to do a spacewalk and 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 to dig into all those details? And I think in the Apollo murders, uh, over half the characters are real people, like actual people mm -hmm. who lived or are still alive. And I would say ninety five percent of the stuff in the book is all real. Real spaceships, real things that happen, real events, and then I've just I've just kind of woven this twisted uh, plot in amongst yeah. all those signposts of reality. So that made it fun to write, but I think it also makes it fun to read. Yeah, I'm not going to give any spoilers whatsoever, but <laughs> I'm probably not saying more than is on the back cover if I say it's basically the story about a fictitious Apollo, all military Apollo 18 mission. So like a sort of a historical account of alternative history, whatever you want to call it, something like right. that. Just an alternative history, but very much based in reality. And yeah. uh, and um, one thing a lot of people don't know is, yeah, this is sort of a combined NASA military space flight. What a lot of people don't know is the space shuttle, which flew 135 times, mm. was very much a combined military NASA vehicle. Mm. And Nixon didn't have the money to fund it originally, so he had to go to the Air Force to get a lot of the money. So they got to decide on the design of the space shuttle. And the, purp the purpose of the U.S. space shuttle was to launch out of California, go up, intercept uh, an enemy satellite, grab it, stick it in the payload bay, and then come around and land all in one orbit of the world. That's what drove the design of the U.S. Wow. space shuttle with that incredible integration between military objectives and scientific objectives. So that gave me a lot of real room where I can yes. build the plot of the Apollo murders, given that that was the mentality of the early mid seventies and the reality of what was happening. Yeah, no, I see where some of the ideas came from for sure. Yeah. So, so Chris, I always end the, the episodes on the same question for everybody, which, and, and this is a really easy segue because we're talking about novels and, um, and to, to some extent science fiction, although it's not technically science fiction. Besides the Apollo murders, what other people's science fiction do you really rate highly and enjoy? And it could be TV series, movie, or books. Um, well, uh, in television or, or in movies, um, you know, if we're talking space, uh, I think the best ever was Apollo 13 or 2001 A Space Odyssey. One, because it, it stuck to the story and did a really great job of bringing that actual series of events to life. And the other, because it was just such an amazingly mind-bendingly a fascinating adventure through history and the future. So I've, I've always loved those two films. And then the series From the Earth to the Moon that Tom Hanks did, it oh, really yeah. tells, tells the story well. Yeah. Um, and then in books, I, I always was thrilled by good science fiction. And uh, I think Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles is a really interesting story. He wrote it in 49 after atomic weapons had first been used, but before the first space flight had occurred. So there's almost an innocence to it, but also a really harsh 
um, reflection of the wickedness of human behavior because it was right after the Second World War. So I think The Martian Chronicles is a really interesting um, science fiction space book to read. Um, but uh, right now, in order to write uh, good fiction, uh, what all of the, the people that, that counseled me and the good writers, they say, you got to be reading good fiction and, and, a whole, and a whole bunch of it. And so I'm constantly digging into and reading uh, other thriller fiction, action thriller books, just, just to mm -hmm. see how other authors did it, but also to, you know, to sort of get that thought process going in my mind. So, so that's a lot of what I read these days is just to, uh, to sort of keep, um, keep sharpening the knife, if you will, so that, so that I, I can do as, as good a writer as I could possibly be. Yeah. Terrific. Chris, thank you so much for going off through all of these different fascinating topics. And again, thank you so much for being such a evangelist for the space industry <laughs> and what's going on. This really important, I think, inflection point or important moment in time for, for space and, and hence for humanity, I, I'd venture to say. And I think I speak for many people when I say we're really looking forward to the, um, the TV series about the Apollo murders. <laughs> Yeah, I, I am too. And and Raphael, thanks for making the time for me to be part of your podcast today. Thanks for all the work you do in uh, in incubating and developing uh, uh, all the businesses that are developing around the space uh, space field, and for being part of Creative Destruction Lab. But also, mostly, just thanks. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Same. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.